often meets with rejection and disapproval from others, it's no wonder that it's hard for us to know, let alone admit, that we are angry. Why are angry women so threatening to others? If we are guilty, depressed, or self-doubting, we stay in place. We do not take action except against our own selves, and we're unlikely to be agents of personal and social change. In contrast, angry women may change and challenge the lives of us all, as witnessed by the past decade of feminism. And change is an anxiety-arousing and difficult business for everyone, including those of us who are actively pushing for it. Thus, we too learn to fear our own anger, not only because it brings about the disapproval of others, but also because it signals the necessity for change. We may begin to ask ourselves questions that serve to block or invalidate our own experience of anger. Is my anger legitimate? Do I have a right to get angry? What's the use of my getting angry? What good will it do? These questions can be excellent ways of silencing ourselves and shutting off our anger. Let us question these questions. Anger is neither legitimate nor illegitimate, meaningful nor pointless. Anger simply is. To ask, is my anger legitimate, is similar to asking, do I have a right to be thirsty? After all, I just had a glass of water 15 minutes ago. Surely my thirst is not legitimate. And besides, what's the point of getting thirsty when I can't get anything to drink now anyway? Anger is something we feel. It exists for a reason and always deserves our respect and attention. We all have a right to everything we feel. And certainly, our anger is no exception. There are questions about anger, however, that may be helpful to ask ourselves. What am I really angry about? What is the problem, and whose problem is it? How can I sort out who is responsible for what? How can I learn to express my anger in a way that will not leave me feeling helpless and powerless? When I'm angry, how can I clearly communicate my position without becoming defensive or attacking? These are questions that we will be addressing with the goal not of getting rid of our anger or doubting its validity, but of gaining greater clarity about its sources and then learning to take a new and different action on our own behalf. There is, however, another side of the coin. If feeling angry signals a problem, Venting anger does not solve it. Venting anger may serve to maintain and even rigidify the old rules and patterns in a relationship, thus ensuring the change does not occur. When emotional intensity is high, many of us engage in non-productive efforts to change the other person and in so doing fail to exercise our power to clarify and change our own selves. Those of us who are locked into ineffective expressions of anger suffer as deeply as those of us who dare not get angry at all. This cassette is designed to help women move away from styles of managing anger that do not work for us in the long run. These include silent submission, ineffective fighting and blaming, and emotional distancing. My task is to provide the listener with the insight and practical skills 
to stop behaving in our old predictable ways and begin to use anger to clarify a new position in significant relationships. Not only can we acquire new ways of managing old angers, we can also gain a clearer and stronger I, and with it the capacity for a more intimate and gratifying we. Many of our problems with anger occur when we choose between having a relationship and having a self. This is about having both. Old moves, new moves, and counter moves. The evening before my workshop on anger was scheduled to take place, a woman named Barbara telephoned me at home to cancel her registration. I really wanted to come to your workshop, but my husband put his foot down. I fought with him until I was blue in the face, but he won't let me come. What was his objection, I inquired. I, I was curious. You, she said. He said that you were a radical women's liber and the workshop wasn't worth the money. And I told him that you were a well-known psychologist and the workshop would certainly be good. No was his final word. I'm sorry, I said. Well, so am I, she continued. But I did put up quite a fight. In fact, my husband even agreed that I needed some kind of help with my anger because I behaved like such a bitch. I hung up the phone and thought about the brief conversation that had just taken place. Clearly, this woman did not have to cancel her registration to the workshop. She could have chosen to do otherwise, but she could not have chosen to do otherwise without consequences. Perhaps the consequence that she feared was the loss of her most important relationship. Unlike some women who dare not differ with their husbands or lovers, Barbara has no problem getting angry. Her problem is that she fights in a manner that ensures the change will not occur, and she protects her husband and the status quo of their relationship at the expense of her own growth. She, quote, de-selfs herself for her man. De-selfing means that too much of oneself that's one's thoughts, wants, beliefs, ambitions. Too much of oneself is negotiable under pressures from the relationship. A form of deselfing that's common to women is called underfunctioning. The underfunctioning, overfunctioning pattern is a familiar one in couples. Like a seesaw, it's the underfunctioning of one individual that allows for the overfunctioning of the other. My brief phone conversation with Barbara suggests that she is the underfunctioner in her marriage. Now, obviously, not all women sit on the bottom of the seesaw in their relationships. In real life, there are any number of happy and unhappy arrangements. A man can sit on the bottom of the seesaw, or a couple can keep the seesaw moving over time, or sometimes each partner may compete with the other, for the more helpless one-down position, you know, like who can be sicker than the other. But what's important is that being at the bottom of the seesaw relationship is culturally prescribed for women, while individual women may defy or even reverse the prescription, it underlies our very definition of femininity and the whole ethos of male dominance. Sure enough, those old dictates to 
play dumb and let the man win, pretend he's boss. They're out of vogue. But the message still remains a guiding rule that lurks in the unconscious of countless women. We learn to act weaker to help men feel stronger. And we learn to strengthen men by relinquishing our own strength. Ineffective blaming versus assertive claiming. How does fighting and blaming actually serve to block rather than facilitate change? Let's analyze Barbara's situation more closely. To begin with, she participated in a dead-end battle about going to the workshop, and she used her anger energy to try to make her husband see things her way. There are two problems with her efforts to change her husband's mind. First of all, he has as much right to his opinions about the workshop as she has to hers. We all have a right to everything we think and feel. And second, it's hardly likely that she's going to succeed in this venture. She may know from past experience that this workshop is just the thing that her husband would say no to. By engaging in a battle that she could only lose, Barbara failed to exercise the power that she really did have, the power to take charge of her own self. Barbara would have taken a significant step out of her de-self position if she had clarified her own priorities and taken action on her own behalf. Making changes, taking chances. What if Barbara did something different and clarified a new position with her husband? What if she approached him at a time when he'd be really receptive to hearing her and just stated her position firmly, calmly?